Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. I have two incredible guests today, and they have stories to tell that you wouldn't believe. But I want to bring them on because they're going to help us weigh in on a huge issue that's happening right now. Did you know that we're going through an infodemic right now on top of the pandemic? What's an infodemic, you ask? Well, this is a deluge of information, both factual and incorrect, that has made it harder for us to think critically about the best ways to battle COVID-19 in strategic ways. As you know, we are still learning so much about this virus, so no wonder we are sometimes confused by the seemingly inconsistent messaging from all sides. One of the most hotly debated topics is vaccination. Is it safe? Is it effective? Do we want to take it ourselves? Do we want to give it to our kids? And will it truly make a difference to curb the pandemic? The World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health in this past year. And a recent survey conducted in the UK found that 36% of people were uncertain or unlikely to be vaccinated against COVID-19. And a quick Google search will take you down a path of conspiracy theories from the biologically implausible message that the virus is spread by mobile phone towers to bogus natural cures you can buy in lieu of taking the vaccine. In these uncertain times, our strongest weapon is to inoculate ourselves and the general public against this infodemic by empowering people to stop and report misinformation, to think critically for themselves, and to make the best decision given the credible information available without falling prey to groupthink and community pressures. And here's where an important psychological theory comes in and where I'd like to focus our conversation today. I'm going to introduce you to a concept you may not have heard of, and this is called inoculation theory. Inoculation theory explains how an attitude or a belief can be protected against harmful persuasion and influence in very much the same way that a body can be protected against disease, like the way vaccines are supposed to help protect our body, through pre-exposure to weakened versions of a stronger future threat. So it's kind of like a vaccine for your mind. What does this mean for you? Well, this means when all this information is coming at you, you can truly understand the information, analyze it, and make the best decisions for yourself instead of relying on the multitude of voices around you that may or may not have your best interests or worse yet, propagate inaccurate or harmful information. Applying these ideas to attitudes or beliefs, this theory has great potential for building public resilience or immunity against misinformation and fake news, and has great utility for tackling science, denialism, risky behaviors, and emotionally manipulative marketing. This theory, it was developed by social psychologist William McGuire in 1961, and it has been studied and tested through decades of research, including experimental lab studies and field investigations. And we can apply it to our current situation and other situations in the future when we want to make sure we're holding strong to helpful attitudes and beliefs. And again, not falling for misshapen ideas that might take us down unhelpful or even harmful paths to educate ourselves on how to apply inoculation theory and so that we can learn the cautionary tales of the extremes of groupthink, I've invited two spectacular guests to the show who will tell us about the dark side of persuasive messaging and misinformation and how to guard ourselves against these strategies that hijack our independent thinking. I can't wait to tackle today's hard-hitting topic, which has everyday implications for all of us. Despite the incredulity of what you're here, most people who are survivors of cults will tell you that their journey into becoming a member starts quite normally. And it was usually tied to a positive cause or goal where they were hoping to bring transformative change to themselves and others. 
to educate ourselves on how to apply inoculation theory and so that we can learn the cautionary tales of the extremes of groupthink, I've invited two spectacular guests to the show who will tell us about the dark side of persuasive messaging and misinformation and how to guard ourselves against these strategies that hijack our independent thinking. Mike King has worked in the law enforcement field for over four decades. He has investigated serial crimes where he interviewed and studied infamous serial killers, trained in criminal profiling, and has consulted with government agencies across the world on real-time crime centers, security for national conventions, Super Bowl games, national female exercises, and the G20 Summit. He is here today to talk to us about the book he authored called Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult, which is all about his 1991 investigation and ultimate takedown of a deviant polygamous cult. Also here to share her incredible story is Andrea Lithgow. She was kidnapped and brought into the Zion Society cult at the age of 12. She was later able to escape the oppression she experienced and now inspires people through her story of survival and thriving. Andrea is an amazing person, and her relationship with the fantastic Mike King has been a fascinating journey and learning experience for both of them. So welcome, Mike and Andrea, to the podcast. Thank you both for being here. Oh, thank you, Dr. Judy. This is so fun to be here with you, and to have Andrea here is a real treat. Thank you very much, both of you, for having me. <laughs> I'm I'm giddy. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to talk to you both. And Mike, let's start with you. How did you get involved in this case in the first place? Oh, it's crazy to think that 30 years ago, this this happened. I, I was working as a property crimes investigator, Doc. I, I uh, had a group of uh, officers and we were buying and selling stolen vehicles. And I was just having the time of my life. I was working for the district attorney's office. And uh, one day at noon, I walked into the office. There was no one around. And the receptionist said, could you please talk to this woman who's been waiting for some time to meet with someone? So I was a, I was the last person they expected and probably the last one that should have. But I walked over to her and introduced myself. And she said, I've been involved in a, a, a ritual cult that's been sexually abusing children. Do you have a moment to talk to me? And of course, I was just uh, tried not to act surprised, but uh, I was blown away. And you then spent a month working around the clock to investigate the leader of this cult, the Zion cult. So tell me about Arvin. Who was Arvin and what did you learn about him during this time? Yeah, Arvin Shreve was an interesting fellow. He was a landscaper who actually landscaped many of the beautiful gardens around the city and county building. He, uh, many of the fancy homes in town. He was really a fixture in town and uh, known by many people. He had been in landscaping and working for the, the city and the county for many years. And uh, what we started to hear and learn was that he developed a, um, a superiority complex of sorts where he started to believe that he was actually a self-appointed prophet of God. And uh, he started to then espouse his religious beliefs in hopes of building a group, which, which did eventually grow to about 120 people. Wow. And actually, in 1991, you had 70 policemen raid 10 homes within the Zion cult compound. So tell me what you remember about that day. Well, you know, it was number one, it was a month of really hard work by me and, and a team of people. I was fortunate to, to be able to, to lead that group. But we um, when we served the search warrants, Doc, it was uh, more than we could have imagined. We had tales that were spun of hidden caches of weapons and a pharmacy that was in one of the homes, uh, one home that served as a security center where all of the homes were interconnected by alarm systems so that as anyone came into the neighborhood, they were immediately notified. And so we chose to serve the search warrants at, at 6 a.m., 
at the crack of dawn in hopes that we could we could catch them uh, back on their hills a little bit. And uh, luckily, all of the teams hit it with such precision that in about uh, 15 seconds, we had all the homes secured and and uh, the officers were uh, in control. And we started through the process of of collecting evidence and and inspecting the homes. And of course, we had a number of arrest warrants that we were hoping to serve at the same time. In addition to that, we had a cadre of mental health uh, professionals who were with us to take custody of the children that were in the group that, that we had warrants to be able to collect for um, for interviews. And, and, uh, and so that was a process taking place at the same time. There was a great deal of emotion in everyone because, uh, you know, these beautiful facades, these homes were incredibly adorned and the yard gardens were incredible. But inside, there were such ugly things happening. And in fact, you eventually brought over 4,000 counts of rape and sex abuse charges against the multiple cult members that were involved. But eventually, you actually had to stop charging people. Why did you do that? That was a really difficult decision for the prosecution. Uh, the, the county attorney who worked intimately throughout the entire case with me on this uh, eventually got to the point that he said, how long do we continue to punish these children? Because back in the 90s, children were forced to testify in preliminary hearings. We've seen those rules change over time. And, and uh, Andrea and, and the other children in this this cult and others were kind of the impetus in changing some of those laws. But it got to the point that we thought, do we continue to punish these children by making them relive these experiences? Because this went on for two years, the trials that we had, that we eventually thought in the interest of the children that we needed to stop. And, and Andrea may have some real strong feelings about the fact that we did stop because there were adults that didn't uh, end up being prosecuted that should have been. And it was really, it sounds like a balancing act that you and the prosecution had to ultimately weigh against each other. This idea of, should we keep charging? But at the same time, we were traumatizing the children who had been through this horrible nightmare for so much of their life. And Andrew, this is where I want to start asking you about your memories, early memories of being involved. How did this all begin for you? Because it sounds like you were sort of raised in this environment and you were a child when you first became involved in the cult. Yes, I think a, a certain point that you're trying to make in this podcast is about you know brainwashing and getting involved in ideas. And the problem was for me is because I'm the youngest of six children, my mother was already getting involved in these ideas of polygamy and alternative ways of living from the time I was probably four or five. So it's really all that I knew and her, her, her zealous, you know, zealous way of just pursuing these types of environments. So she'd already been involved in a polygamous cult before she met these particular people that we're talking about. So when she met them, she was just, I think, looking for like the next cult to fill her, you know, her, I call it like an addictive, addictive thing she was pursuing. She needed to be involved in a cult in order to feel alive or mm. to satisfy her, her personal um, religious goals. I'll, I guess I'll call it. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. And did she ever try to explain it to you in somewhat age-appropriate terms when you were a child, what you guys were doing when you guys became involved with Zion? Or it was just like, this is where we're living now. No, she didn't. It was not a hands-on mother. She just kind of did her thing. And a bunch of people lived with us when I was growing up. And it was a very unsafe environment from the very beginning. I did not feel safe at all. Um, just a lot of communal living, lots of people living with us, coming and going. And mm. so I didn't know anything different, ultimately. And, and actually, I always assumed that I would be a polygamist wife. I just kind of made that realization as a child. Right. Well, because that's yeah. what's going on all around you. That's what everybody else was doing. And you didn't really know any different, like you said. How did your siblings react? Did anybody ever question this as children or very much like what you just said? It kind of just felt like, well, this is how life is. And you guys just all accepted it as children. Well, so unfortunately, my sister was at the age where she wasn't old enough for a choice, just like I wasn't. But then our brother... I mean, to put it bluntly, my parents essentially said, join this cult with us or we're kicking you out when he was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So he didn't really have a choice either, but he was out in the street basically on his own or he would join the cult with us. So my other siblings were already off 
doing other things and married and having children. Um, and I think I just didn't know. I think I just thought it was another weird cult that my parents had stumbled into and didn't really think that much about it, honestly. Right. How did you cope with what you saw and what you were going through as you, you know, grew older and could kind of see what this was all about? I shut down. And now that I'm so much older and I've actually tried writing about it, I've realized to what a tremendous degree, I just sh shut everything down so that I could get through it because it, it becomes an interesting battle within yourself that you want to please the cult leader. Cause he's made you these promises that if you do X, Y, or Z that mostly involves sex, that he would get you to God. It was like, he was the ticket. He was the middleman. And you felt lucky that you'd been chosen. So I was, there was a certain sort of like pleasure I was gaining out of, out of making him happy, even though it was terrifying. Right. So that's the psychological abuse of, of the, the being a pleaser. That's very damaging. Absolutely. Cause what you're saying is that you were brainwashed as everybody around you was to believe that your cult leader Arvin was your eternal companion. And you were made to believe that if you did everything that he asked and he directed, that you'd get closer to God, that you'd be a more spiritual being. And yet your typical day was very different um, from maybe what people might think of when they think, oh, okay, this is a eternal companion who's there for your best interest. I mean, what was a typical day like for you? How did you dress? How did you, how did you work? What, what was that like? Um, we dress like ugly 80s Barbie dolls um, and dresses every second unless we were doing yard work. Um, every second was directed and planned and you could never get away and escape on your own. It was, it was a lot of personal grooming, cleaning house, doing yard work, sewing, beautifying, scripture study, commuting with the dead, and of course, lots of sexual activities. It, anything you can imagine probably happened there. It's... Uh incredible when we hear these stories, because again, because everybody around you was living that same existence, maybe you didn't realize that that was abuse until a bit later. And I think a lot of the brainwashing also includes how people deal with outsiders. And when you learned about Mike King, what were you led to believe about him? <laughs> he was the devil. He was the devil's right-hand man coming to destroy our perfect society. Uh, you know, we, uh, yeah. I, I don't remember having personal things towards him. I just know that I was made to believe that he was completely the devil. And, you know. Do you remember meeting him um, and what that was like, your memory of talking to Mike and what your reaction was? I don't remember him specifically the morning of the raid. I remember the raid. I don't remember Mike. Um, but I do remember, I don't know how many days passed, if it was three days or three weeks or three months later, he knocked on one of the doors of the houses that I was living in. I answered the door. And I'm sure he just very kindly, you know, tried to suggest that maybe I would want to chat with him. And I just pretty much probably said, no way in hell and slammed the door in his face. So something like that is what I remember. Right. Does that sound about right, Mike? You know, Doc, I, I remember uh, as if it were yesterday, as Andrea was climbing into one of the Division of Family Service vans to to be taken away to to go to foster care and, and uh, to be interviewed. And uh, she may not remember this, but I remember our eyes locking as that van pulled away. And I thought, you know, what what on earth are these children up? for and what have they had to endure. Uh, it was uh, remarkable. And I, I, when I met her many years later, I think the first thing I said to her was that I still see that, uh, that 14 year old face in her, in her now older face. <laughs> it's amazing that you actually met Andrea when she was 14 and all of this was going on. And Mike, despite everything that you've done to help everybody who had been through such trauma, there were times that you felt like you failed the children somehow, that you failed people like Andrea. What did you mean by that? Well, I, it, it was really difficult because even though we felt like we had uh, in one hand rescued these children, uh, at the end of the day, they were returned back to the very parents that put them in the same position. The courts demanded that they have yeah. counseling and the, the courts actually provided money to pay for that counseling, but we made a, a real tactical error back then that we wouldn't make today. And that was 
we, we went on with the investigation and kind of moved forward and we forgot all of these children who then were returned back to the very home where they were subjected in the first place to this kind of behavior. And actually it was pretty recently, a couple of years ago, and this would be almost 30 years after the raid, Andrea reached out to you to talk about how she was doing and explained that maybe she was having a tough time. So Andrea, can you tell me a bit more about what prompted you to reach out to Mike after all of these years? Certainly. Um, I mean, I guess over the years and, and, and getting into therapy and becoming a, a more whole functional person, I mean, obviously I dropped the idea that, that Mike was, you know, the devil clearly. Um, but then, you know, in a way you, you kind of start to idealize that person, but, but he felt completely out of reach. And of course I'd Google his name many times and, mm. and it's almost like I saved his number and like even saved a browser on my, you know, a little tab on my browser. And and it was always just like, oh, someday I'm going to reach out to him. And then I just, one day I did. And I mean, I was motivated by just to understand more. And I started to want to write about my experience. And I just wanted to like talk about it and get his perspective and just try to make more sense of it. Cause mine is only a little piece of the puzzle. And um, he did respond to me. He very kindly um said he was unavailable, but I wished you the very best. Something, something like that, but it was very respectful and very kind. I do remember that, but he did make it seem that he wasn't available even for a phone call. Mm. And I was okay with that. And I kind of understood it. And I felt like I reached out. I did you know what I wanted to do. But Mike, you later changed your mind. And oh, you actually it, ended up orchestrating me. a big reunion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It it was uh, it was difficult, and I didn't have the courage then to to dig up those own own memories for myself. But I couldn't get Andrea out of my mind. There was another uh, victim from the case who reached out within two weeks of her email, uh, also asking, and and I declined that invitation. Um, but. But as the days rolled on, I thought, who on earth am I to make a determination of whether they are getting along okay? And, and so I reached back out and said, what questions can I answer? And boy, did they have questions. So what was the first impetus for you to politely decline engaging with them in the beginning? Were you just thinking that it might be better for them to work through their trauma for example, in therapy and with the people around them, you know, and what, and what caused you to have a change of heart there? Well, I think, I think the real change of heart came after I said no, because I felt remorse for doing it. I, I didn't want to relive those memories. Uh, I mean, uh, police investigators see the ugliest sides of life. This case was ugly beyond uh, even explanation and the things that the children were put through uh, while they didn't realize at the time how wrong it was as child victims. Um, we knew as adults how disgusting and wrong it was. And, uh, and I didn't want to relive those experiences. And I didn't want to go back and think about that. I'd, I'd put the memoir together a couple of times and I just tucked the manuscript away uh, over the 28 years between those two things and, and thought, no, this is not a story to be told. But, but then I couldn't get uh, the words out of my mind that that they needed some help. And that was what I was there for in the first place. So I thought I can at least tell them things that maybe they have never been able to get answers to. And, and some of that was, uh, was therapeutic. I hope for them, it was certainly therapeutic for me to be able to hear them say it really did happen. Then what I've thought all these years actually did occur. And Mike, I just want to point out something important that you mentioned, which is people in your position, and especially because you lived this case, you basically were spending your entire waking hours on it for a month. And then after that, of course, two more years as it was being adjudicated, uh, individuals who are up close and personal with traumatic situations, the ugly, as you said, they do experience vicarious trauma. It, it can be really difficult to cope with. Did you notice that you had 
some struggles after this case was over that sometimes you would still have these memories and they would come back to haunt you in some ways, which maybe led to you maybe wanting to have that clean break when people started reaching out. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I thankfully I had a, f- a faith tradition that I, I felt that I could get support. Um, I was able to talk to others. I uh, Again, as I went through my career, I learned along the way uh, how to triage and, and to work through kinds of issues like that. I also learned that their pain can't be my pain. I can empathize and help them carry the load, but they're the ones that get to deal with that. And that's a kind of a hard lesson to learn along the way. Uh, So so I evolved over time, but it is absolutely difficult on anyone, as I'm sure you know as well, Dr. Ho, that when you deal with complex issues and the emotion attached to that, especially if you have something that you relate to, the, the age of these children was the age of my children. So all of a sudden things become much more real too. Absolutely. And Andrea, did you feel that reconnecting with Mike was helpful for you? And what was one of the questions that you had for him that he answered and that was memorable for you? You know, in addition with just seeing Mike's face and seeing him cry from time to time with our interactions and just really feeling his sincerity, one of the other great benefits was to reconnect with some of the other victims and just hear your own thoughts coming out of their mouth is really validating and feels really amazing. And it just makes you feel less alone in the world, even though they live, you know, many states away and we haven't been in that much contact. It was really nice to reconnect with them and, and just see how they've, you know, they've um, experienced their life and just the different things that we've done to help ourselves. Um, And, you know, one of the, the other question you had was one of the other things that, that Mike really was able to clarify for me. I mean, the multiple things, but just every time he says how horrifying it was, that always feels really good because, you know, when I first got into therapy, it took me a really long time to even realize anything wrong could even happen, to even be able to admit that something wrong had happened. Mm-hmm. So to hear him say that, you know, as a detective that's seen a lot of things on this planet to just confirm that it, that it was that difficult and, and that terrible. Um, and along with that, as I don't want to give away an aspect of his book, but... Um, <laughs> You know, my mother is still in 100% denial, unfortunately, even all these decades later. And she, and not recently, but about 15 years ago, she said, I think that Arvind Shri was actually a really, you know, a good man of God. He just got, you know, a little off. And so it's really amazing to hear, you know, Mike's take, no, he was a straight up pedophile, period. <laughs> you know, right. that figured out a way to just collect a bunch of young women. So that's, because that's what it, the experience was. And I just it's nice to hear that, that that's his take on it. And that was really helpful for me. And thank you so much for sharing this about your experience, Andrea, because I think a couple of things that people don't realize is that when a child tries to cope with the trauma that they've been through, in some ways, they they have to safeguard against actually seeing the horrificness of what they've gone through. Because if they were to acknowledge that, then it can be extremely traumatizing in a different way. And so it's almost like the self-protective mechanism, as you mentioned, that your brain kind of shuts it down and almost makes it okay so that you can survive. And in fact, that's how Stockholm syndrome works. That's really the basis of Stockholm syndrome. And people think that it's a conscious decision. No, I mean, it's an unconscious effort for your mind to protect you so that you kind of stay intact, at least for a little bit, until you truly get out of the situation and can actually then process it for yourself. So I can only imagine how helpful it was to have that affirming voice from Mike because you weren't getting it from your mom. Your mom, unfortunately, I think, you know, I've never met her, but in my mind, I'm thinking she can't even admit it because then she'd have to say, I opened my family up to these abuses. And that might be too much for her to take without her own therapy and and processing and and maybe doing more work around that. And so I I love that Mike was able to be there for you and say, oh no, like this was absolutely a crazy, horrific, terrifying experience and, and validate that. But also what I love is that Mike ended up putting together a reunion 
for you and the other survivors of this cult. And then, Mike, you advocated for them to get more resources, too. So, Mike, can you tell me a little bit about how that all came together? And then I would love to hear from Andrea what her um, experience was like when she got to see all these people on this Zoom call. Oh, that would be something. Yeah. Well, so it was very, uh, my discussions with Andrea and the other uh, victims who stepped forward to talk again, there were 32 uh, children originally and, uh, and, uh, and about eight or nine of those chose to step forward and talk. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I remember Andrea very kindly criticizing our actions on was that again, we, we, offered counseling, but she never knew it as a child. It was it was ordered by the court, but she was sent home to parents who didn't make sure that she had that counseling. That there was never a chance for her to get counseling as a as a child victim. That was really troubling to to me. Another thing that came out very clearly was that because they were homeschooled, they, there was no education opportunities for them. When they did matriculate into the public school system, these kids were so, um, for lack of a better term, so off of what everyone else was socially. Um, uh, as far as academically, and uh, many of them just dropped out, some getting only third grade educations. Andrea hopefully will tell her story because she rose above that. But uh, as a result of that, I went back to the current sitting uh, county attorney in our community and to the county attorney who handled the cases 30 years ago, and said, we got to do something about this. And together we went and petitioned the governor's cabinet and the state victims reparations committee. And um, I'll let Andrea maybe describe what happened in that meeting. But then we took it one step further and we reached out to, to President Brad Mortensen of the Weber State University and said, how do we help these children now adults get educations and uh, and he stepped up in a remarkable way. And so when we threw together this little family reunion of uh, of kids, now adults, uh, when when the cameras turned on and the Zoom Brady Bunch family popped in, I wish you could have seen it because it was they were laughing and crying and a couple of them were swearing and uh, it just went on and on and was a, a, a remarkable experience to take part in. Andrea, what was it like for you? Because this sounds like such an amazing wealth of resources, but also just a reconnection with the community and seeing everybody as they are now 30 plus years after all of this uh, nightmare really ended for you. What was that like when you popped on the screen and saw everybody there? I mean, I was nervous for sure. Um, I think there's a chance I hadn't seen Mike yet either. We'd talked on the phone a couple of times, but I hadn't seen him. I saw him for the first time then. Um, it was kind of like what Mike said about remembering my face as a youth and still seeing that face when he saw me. I felt that way with the gals that I hadn't seen in 30 years. Because one I know and one was my sister. And so the other gals I hadn't seen. And, and that was strange because then it just took me back to remembering details that I hadn't had access to. So many details. So it, it was a, definitely a reliving and and going down a, a rabbit hole that I hadn't really been down much. Um, Doc, Dr. Ho, I, I want to just slip in here something I'd like Andrea to talk about. And that was uh, about halfway through this discussion, which lasted almost three hours. I, uh, at their request, showed them videotapes from the search warrants on the day of that search. And um, as they looked at the curtains that they sewed as children and the and the uh, environments where they were assaulted in it, it, it at times became very emotional. Uh, one location where uh, Arvin raped many children. Um, when, when we went through that room on videotape, one of, one of these wonderful survivors just completely fell apart and you could see the, the, the trauma coming back. I mean, it was terrible, uh, p terribly difficult to witness. And yet they all wanted to be a part of it. 
And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because while some of that almost felt like what Andrew, you were describing almost like a re-exposure, obviously to your past, you, you have done therapy, you have done the work and your life is different now. And you have made so much progress and have developed by leaps and bounds. So tell us about what your life is like now and what you're up to. Thank you very much. Um, well, I, I, I went, you know, I, I got shot out to the world at about 18 years old with no skills and mostly no self-esteem. So that was the biggest roadblock for me for so many years. And that's a big one to overcome because if you never have it, you don't know how to access it. You don't know how to build it. And, and so when I was 33, school kind of crossed my path as an opportunity. I tried it when I was in my early 20s and I failed miserably. It was so overwhelming. But I just desperately wanted to feel educated because I was mad that I felt stupid and like this, like this abused, just washed up dumb country girl. And I wanted to try to get rid of that opinion of myself. So I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> the idea in the cult was that you were supposed to attain a certain level of, of mastery, of spiritual mastery, but you were never given a way to get there. It was all extremely vague and confusing and mysterious. And you never knew when you were there, never knew when you were not there. So when I arrived at school and a professor will hand you a syllabus and say, this is how you get an A, <laughs> I was like in heaven. I'm like, oh my God. A real manual of sorts on how to succeed yeah. at something specific. Exactly. And you worked really hard. And in fact, you ended up getting a scholarship to Berkeley which is amazing. I am a graduate <laughs> I, of Berkeley. Go Bears. No way. One of the most fabulous times in my life for sure. And you built a ceramic jewelry business on your own. And now you're back in graduate school for creative writing. Yes, yes, yes. So all these experiences along the way gave me more self-confidence. I mean, having a jewelry business gave me a ton of self-confidence. I just kept building my self-confidence you know, to the point that I am self-confident enough to go get another degree. And then I think that I'm capable of that and it's going really well so far. And so, yeah, so, so therapy and education are the things that saved me. And I, and I've been, I've spent about 15 years in therapy total, I would say. And, and, and I will tell you just one quick little thing in, I don't know if you have heard of this, but, but internal family systems, IFS is the therapy model that's done the most for me because it's it's taught me how to have some compassion for myself, which is really hard when you've come to this kind of environment. I'm so glad that you shared that. And it's so important because again, your configuration of a family, your idea of a family was so warped when you were a child and really trying to rebuild those attachments and trust in the world, trust in yourself and ultimately being able to rely on yourself and the skill sets that you've developed to keep moving forward in life. It is such a beautiful story. And Mike, I'm so glad that you were able to do this for the individuals involved to give them a second chance at life and not only just get them out of this terrible environment, but then follow up with them as you have and given them this opportunity to reconnect and show one another that there is a resilience in that group and in that community. So tell me about why you finally decided to dust off this uh, manuscript that you'd been tucking away and finally bring the story to light for everybody to read. Well, um, before I answer that, I want to just say um, the, the end story with the state and with the university was that the state of Utah reached out and promised all of the children that were involved in that cult 32 years ago that they would pay with victims reparations money for all of their counseling. Uh, and, and that was a remarkable moment to be able to share that with each of these uh, survivors of this case. And then uh, President Mortensen from Weber State stepped up and said, whether it's a GED or a PhD, the university will um, help you attain an education. And, uh, and so that was a remarkable moment for everyone. So, so why did I dust this goofy thing off and finish it? it is because of people like Andrea Lithgow and Amber Don Lee and Natalie Root and Anessa and Laura and Cammie and Don and the, 
number names go on and on that were victims of this horrendous thing because they said the story needs to be told. And, uh, and so we had some long discussions about what that format would look like because I wanted to make sure we told the story in a way that was honest and fair, but not disgusting. And, uh, and together we came up with a plan. So it's been an honor to, to bounce ideas off of them along the way. And it did change dramatically over that 30 years to what it ended up being. Well, I read your book. And I love your book, Mike, and I'm so glad that I got to learn more today about Andrea's personal story. Both of you guys are such inspirations, and I know that people who are listening now, there's a sense of hope that despite some of the most difficult and horrific experiences that human beings can go through, that there's always an opportunity for a second chance and for change, and that we can help ourselves to those opportunities, which I think is such a powerful element of the story. And I just want to ask each of you guys one final question. We started this podcast episode talking about the fact that there is a lot of false information. Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to influence us, sometimes for the better and sometimes not for our good. How do we start to trust ourselves and how do we inoculate ourselves against false information? Andrea, why don't you take this first? Because you had mentioned how much education has really transformed you as a person and understanding that you can develop these skill sets. So what do you think about that? I'll tell you a story. I was sitting in my very first English class at my first years at Santa Monica College, and I'm not embarrassed to tell you this. The cute little teacher up ahead, I think pregnant with her second child, was talking to us about what critical thinking is and how when you pick up a piece of information, the very first thing you should do is say, well, who wrote this? Why did they write it? Why should I care? And I, I will tell you, my mind was absolutely blown because my mother never did that, obviously. And I wasn't trained to think that way. So to me, that was the most important thing that school gave me was to understand that critical thinking is a skill and it's a very important skill to have. And just to be able to analyze information and, and understand how it applies to us and, and not be afraid to ask questions and question things and not go along with the crowd, you know? That's fantastic, Andrea. I thank you for telling me that story because now as a adult who, of course, self-development never ends. But when I think back on my college years and thinking about the most generalizable gift I got from college, it's absolutely this idea of critical thinking and being able to practice it in a safe environment. Um, you know, make mistakes, have people laugh at you. It's all good, but you develop it as a skill over time and you start to trust that skill, but it's also constantly in development. And we always have to remind ourselves to ask those questions. So thank you for saying that. Mike, how are you going to follow that up? <laughs> how, how do you follow that up? Other than with a quote from Miss Andrea Lithgow that I have in the book that I uh, don't think I'll ever forget. And that was, she said, I lived in an environment that told me what to think. When she went to school, she learned how to think. And so I have to back her up on, on the education side. The other thing that I would add is that transparency is absolutely vital in any kind of decisions that are being made. And if people are being uh, transparent and your decision process is transparent, it's usually a good direction that you're going. And then secondly, never allow yourself to be isolated in thought or in environment, because that's where these evil plans hatch and we see people become victimized. Okay, Mike, you just blew my mind also. So both of you guys had seriously perfect answers to that very crucial question. So Andrea, when you first learned about Mike, you were taught to hate him. And now your relationship has really transformed over the years. So what would you like to say to Mike today? I just thank you for having the guts to work this hard and to care this much. Because honestly, if you hadn't have done this, I really don't know what would have happened and how long this would have gone on. And you were like a fireman running into a burning building just to keep carrying victims out. And I just owe you my life. And I'm just forever grateful. Oh, I love you, kid. Thanks for having the courage. <laughs> this makes me want to cry. <laughs> yeah, well, I am crying, so... Aww. 
lost my testosterone a long time ago, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a very strong man to cry. I, I love it when men cry. <laughs> Andrea is a, an amazing soul, and I'll tell you, a courageous soul. I, she uh, went and met with her mother, uh, who's still living in a polygamous cult, and uh, and uh, sent me a picture right after that. And uh, I uh, have have gladly uh, offered a surrogate father role to any of these kids anytime. And I keep calling them kids and it's wrong. And they just have given up on trying to correct me at this point. But in my mind, uh, that's, that's where we started with kids, but they've turned into amazing women. It's so amazing to watch them. Thank you, Mike. And you, you, this has just been amazing to reconnect with you. And thank you for our particip your participation in helping us like develop our self-esteem. Oh my gosh. No, I mean, I just wanted to say one thing and if it doesn't make it into the podcast, it's fine. But I just felt like, you know, it's so important that you have this reparative experience with a man who is positive and a man who protects you and the way that you should have had the type of male father type figures in your life back in the day, but you didn't, you know, and I, I love that you're having this reparative experience now. And that just really touches my heart. So thank you guys for allowing me to be witness to your beautiful relationship. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Right. Thank you. <laughs> you guys have taught me a lot today, and I know that our listeners have really enjoyed hearing about your stories. So, Mike, I'm so, so excited and so honored that I got to write the foreword for your book, even. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Can you tell everybody how they can find you? Because you have your own very successful YouTube show in addition to this book. Well, yes. And, and Dr. Ho, thank you so much for writing that forward Your because book. Uh, you stepped out on thin ice doing that. And I am so grateful <laughs> for, for that and for your friendship and the professional association. If you're interested, you can go to profilingevil.com, just like it sounds, profilingevil.com. And there you can uh, pre-order the book. And thank you so much. Come see us on our YouTube channel where we uh, talk about unsolved cases and we talk about how law enforcement really is making a positive difference, especially in this day and age when there's so much negativity surrounding uh, the things that are that are going on around law enforcement. Some of it well-deserved, I must say, but uh, the 99 percenters are working so hard to try to protect and serve each of us. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike, and for all the work that you're doing. It's really, truly wonderful and really, really glad to have hosted you today. And Andrea, where can people learn about you? I'm hoping that there's a book in your future as well, now that you're tackling more creative writing and you've talked about writing many times in this podcast episode. So how can people learn more about what you're up to? Well, I don't have a, a, a writing kind of profile online yet because I've just literally just started doing that, but I'm so excited. I am working on a memoir. So hopefully within who knows a year to two years, it'll be ready. I wish it was sooner, but I don't want to rush that. In the meantime, I've been making jewelry for 15 years and that's dandyjewelry.com. Awesome. You know? <laughs> dandyjewelry.com. And you're wearing one of your pieces today, which is so cool. And whenever you are ready to release that book, I will be so honored to support you and spread the word about it. So thank you so much. Thank you both again for being here. I really appreciate everything that you are doing. And thank you for inspiring people during these difficult times. Thank you, Dr. Ho. Thank you, Dr. Ho, for having me. Wow, you guys, what an amazing, <laughs> just wasn't what an amazing experience this was. I felt like I learned so much from the episode today and both Mike and Andrea are so well-spoken and were able to really shed light on this experience of groupthink and brainwashing and how people can come through it on the other side, thriving in their lives. So in the vein of today's episode, I really want to get back to this idea of how we can inoculate ourselves against misinformation that could be harmful to us. So the first part of the supercharged secret is to adopt a healthy skepticism. I feel like Andrea said it best. She talked about learning critical thinking for the first time in college and healthy skepticism means that you want to think critically 
as you engage with new content ideas or perspectives. So think like a scientist, get ready to question things, ask where the source is from, from which you are getting that information. When in doubt, use the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why, and get used to questioning any information that you come across so that you can really take that information and think through it on your own. The second tip is to look for credible sources of information, especially as it applies to the vaccine right now and how to deal with COVID. We have to restore trust in our doctors, the health organizations, and those that feel less duly influenced by politics given our current climate. So be cognizant that we're all susceptible to be influenced by people we like, whether it's celebrities or respected family member. And just remember the importance of thinking for yourself and not overly relying on what we call peripheral routes of persuasion to shape our decisions. So again, look for that credible source of information. Third tip is to play devil's advocate. This means actively looking for information that might actually present the opposing view from yours. We usually don't do this. Instead, we Google what we already believe, and therefore we're prone to getting confirmatory information. So the next time you want to do that, actually do the opposite. Look for the opposite information so that you can really weigh this evidence for yourselves. The fourth tip is to engage wise mind. Now, this is a concept from dialectical behavior therapy. It's where your emotion mind and your logical mind come together to really act from a place of intuition and from common sense. So think about how to take all of the information coming your way to make the wisest decision possible. And we will definitely talk about dialectical behavior therapy in a future episode of this podcast. The final tip is to use implementation intentions. This is a proven technique where you link anticipated situations to goal-direct responses, like if situation X arise, I will then undertake Y response. These if-then plans can help facilitate positive health behavior. So plan ahead, take the information that you know, and make sure that when that situation comes up, you already know how to reach your objective in a healthy and responsible way. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and you want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. So you guys, I want to shout out a very lovely review that I got on this podcast. Thank you guys for writing these because I do read all of them and appreciate them. And this reviewer, Dr. Kelly says, Dr. Judy's Supercharged podcast is absolutely a must listen. She is beyond knowledgeable, credible, and insightful. She invites an open dialogue focused on an array of important topics with some amazing guests. She's relatable, personable, and so easy to listen to. I would highly recommend this podcast to be bookmarked as one of your favorites. And this is coming from a fellow licensed psychologist. So I appreciate you, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much for the kind review. And I will try to keep up the great content for you guys. Also, please make sure to check out Mike's book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. You will really enjoy it. I really couldn't put it down and it's a great read. Also support Andrea's jewelry business, dandyjewelry.com. We will have the links for both of their excellent pieces of work in the show notes below. If you have a question you want answered on this podcast, send me a message and I will try as best as I can to get to them in the next few weeks. I'm Dr. Judy and remember, Anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.